Hey, everybody. It's Jackie Johnson, host of Natch Butte. We talk skincare, we talk makeup, we talk all things beauty, and my guest this week is Ariana Maddox. Hi. What do we talk about, Ariana? Oh, my gosh. We answer all of your questions. We do. We talk about how our dogs were in a Pharrell video together. We talk about... Um, exfoliation. Oh, we talk about exfoliation. We talk about uh, tanning, self-tanning. We talk about laser hair removal. We, we go there. We dive, do a deep dive in my makeup bag. We And Tom's. And Tom's. <laughs> and Tom's Sandoval's. So maybe check out Natribute this week and see what we're talking about. See you there. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough. And to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D-S-T, T-L-D, you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FERAL and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Feral Audio. Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. Thank you very much for taking out the time to listen to my show. It is exactly uh, what the title implies there. I have a conversation with an individual. I try to keep it free-formed. I speak with a great many uh, authors, artists, activists, and musicians. Today, I am very proud to have jazz musician and composer Ken Vandermark He's an inc- he's he's incredible, man. I I used to go see him at the Lunar Cabaret in Chicago a long time ago, and I've always been a big jazz fan. And uh, you know, I'd see jazz and I'd listen to jazz. And then once in a while, like any f- form of art, once in a while somebody comes along and you go, "Oh, well, that's just goddamn brilliant and mind blowing." And Mr. Vandermark is one of those dudes who just you're in awe of when you see him perform and listen to. Uh, so I'm very, 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 very proud to have a conversation with him, and it is uh, really enlightening and incredible, and it altered uh, some of the ways I view the world, which is exactly what I want with this goddamn show. If you are a fan of Ken Vandermark's, you, uh, you'll probably want to visit some of my other episodes. I spoke with uh, avant-garde composer Harold Budd. I've had Wayne Kramer on the show a bunch uh, from the MC5, and he also plays free jazz these days. Uh, it's uh, so peruse my my old archives there, and uh, all things uh, Matt Dwyer are on themattdwyer.com. Also, at the end of this conversation with Ken Vandermark, there is a song uh, from his l- latest uh, project, Audio One. Um, that is the na- name of the group. 
And the song is called Theme de Yo-Yo. I hope I pronounced that right. I didn't ask Ken how to pronounce it, and I could look like a jackass. But, man, it's it's right there at the end of the conversation. It is one badass fucking song. Uh, so you're going to want to check that out. I can't stop listening to the thing. It's uh, it's funky and awesome. Uh, also, you can find out more of Ken Vandermark's music at kenvandermark.com. You could find out about all his projects. He's He's got so much work out there. It's incredible. Um, I'm really, really stoked because it. I've wanted Ken Vandermark since day one of the show. Finally, he did it, uh, did the show, uh, and it's a great conversation. Why don't we just get to it already, Dwyer? Here's Ken Vandermark. mentioned i used to uh, a bunch of us used to go see you at uh, i can't remember if it, was it the blue moon cafe uh, it was a lunar cabaret i think yes 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 on lincoln yeah yeah that was lunar cabaret yeah that was many years ago so i was uh <laughs> and yeah, that was a while back <laughs> and, uh, and that was uh, friends of mine introduced me to your music uh there and i was just absolutely blown away oh wow okay thanks uh, and, yeah and i was still kind of a, a novice in uh understanding jazz and i would probably say i still am a novice understanding it but i i had yet to see something like that and it really just it blew my goddamn mind <laughs> okay <laughs> uh and uh, to start off um this is just from when we uh you and i emailed back and forth a couple of years ago and i asked if you were ever going to make your way to los angeles and it's uh you said it's not uh, as it's not always beneficial for you to tour in the United States. And I was wondering how come, why is Europe more accepting to uh, more sort of experimental music or various forms of music than the United people in the United States? Well, I don't think it's only that. I mean, I think that the audiences of the United States, when I tour, uh, in many ways are compatible uh, in terms of the size of the audience, uh, the knowledge, the enthusiasm, uh, et cetera, of European audiences. One of the biggest difference, differences until, I'd say, recently has been the amount of money that goes towards the arts in Western Europe in particular, but um, you know, in other parts of the world as compared to the United States. I mean, a while back now, probably 15 years or more, I played at a festival, the Berlin Jazz Festival, um, and at that time found out that the city of Berlin, just the city of Berlin, spent more money on the arts than the entire country of the United States. So when you're looking at programs that, not just for music, but for the visual arts, for film, for theater, et cetera, um, when there's a culture that supports the arts and and uh, sees artistic activity as not something that lazy people do, but <laughs> that contributes to society and and whatnot. You know, you're dealing with a different uh, set of resources. And in the United States, I mean, it's always been the case that the arts have been looked at as like a um, a luxury, not as a necessity. You know, and I think in other places, uh, you know, Germany, France. Uh, Scandinavia, Netherlands, whatever, um, Italy. I mean, you've got all these uh, countries with long-term culture 
that's involved with with painting with with music and that's part of who they are that's how they define themselves as people and in the united states the arts are always separate I mean, there's a lot more, I would say there's more separation of the arts and state than the church and state in the United States, <laughs> you know. That's a terrifying and, concept. And yeah, and so, so that's, I think, the, one of the bigger issues, really. Um, and if, so, for example, I make, when I'm on tour in Europe, I'll make three to one the amount of money as in the United States. But that's because, to a large uh, part, is not the fee I get paid, but that money goes towards travel in Europe very often. They uh, pay for accommodations. They'll feed you. They'll do a lot of things that don't happen in the United States. I mean, it's very, very uncommon to get more than, like, you show up at a venue. You're supposed to get there. Um, sometimes they'll do a buyout. Sometimes they'll feed you. You know, if it's at a place that's got food, they'll get wrapped in. But almost always you have to pay for your accommodations. And all these things, like, add up, the cost of gas if you're in a van and everything. So, you know, when you asked about coming to L.A., for me to fly out to the West Coast, I'm looking at, if you really stretch it, trying to do a gig in San Diego, L.A., the Bay Area, maybe two shows in that area. Then i got to go all the way up to Portland or Eugene and then Seattle. So you're talking, like, tops you know, really stretching it like seven shows on the West Coast with some really, really, really heavy travel. And before you even get there, you've got to you buy a ticket that isn't going to get subsidized. So you're already in the hole before you even get there. And for the cost of getting out to the West Coast, for a little bit more, I can get to Europe and work for a month, you know, almost playing every day. So I think that you know, that's a big factor, too, just the financial part. And that reality affects what's what's doable. You know, everyone's got to pay their bills. And as much as I want to perform, I also have to figure out how I'm going to, like, cover my rent. Man, that's uh, it's that's so upsetting <laughs> to me. And it's like, I mean, as a performer, I know performers in Los Angeles and stuff. It's like it's also often assumed that people will pay, will work for free or for very little pay. And it's just so insulting to artists in this country. Yeah, I mean, uh, the thing that's, hmm, how would I put it? I mean, the truth is that people in the performing arts, musicians, actors, um, they want to work. They, I mean, they want to they want to perform. I mean, you know, improvised music is connected towards it's a process form of art. So you have to do shows to develop the ideas, to develop the languages that you're working with. Um, there isn't like, you know, a score which you then reproduce and interpret. You, you're, you're creating the score on the spot. And if you're not doing concerts, you're not developing those skills, which are all about spontaneity, about thinking incredibly fast and coming up with decisions things on the spot. And uh, if you're playing a concert once a month, you know, you're not going to develop those skills very well. And one of the advantages in Chicago, when you talk about when you uh, – you know, you saw me at, at Lunar Cabaret, you know, this has got to be like 15 plus years ago. Um, from that point until now, I mean, one of the advantages in Chicago is I've been able to play a lot. Other musicians here have been able to play for, you know, play a lot. After the Lunar Cabaret uh, stretch, I mean, I was playing every week with the Vandermark Five at the Empty Bottle for nearly 10 years. You know, so that's like 500 shows right there. 
you know, and, and that's just one club, one, one thing. And as I started touring more, sustaining, you know, like residencies like that, of course, become like nearly impossible, but I'm doing more shows because I'm playing every night in a row, more or less, as opposed to like a weekly gig and then a couple other shows in a week within Chicago. And then the challenge of playing to different audiences, testing material out in front of different kinds of people, all that's really ne necessary, but it's about performing. And those shows at the Empty Bottle, it was $3 to get in. You know, um, so, yeah, you know, we had really good stretches, you know, towards the end of the thing where we'd have 100, 100 plus people in there. But even then, you know, with five people, you're talking $60 a guy off the door when they used to give us the whole door. Um, you can't live on that. You know what I mean? <laughs> but but that was essential work to develop the band, to develop my composition skills, all that stuff. It's like it's priceless in terms of artistic and creative activity, but it won't pay your bills. And the only way I can survive as a musician is to tour, which makes, you know, domestic life really, really difficult. You know, I don't have children, but I'm married and I'm gone, you know, like seven months a year at least. And that's really hard at home. But that's the only way to de develop the music and also survive as a musician playing this kind of music. I don't, I don't work with commercial music. So, you know, I'm creating my own set of problems, but you know, even if, even if you work in Europe, like I'm fortunate enough to do, I mean, I got to be on the road all the time and certainly I'm not like, you know, getting rich doing it, but I love what I do. So I'm looking at it in terms of being paid through the work itself, through the people I meet, through the people I collaborate with, which from my standpoint is priceless as long as I can pay my bills, you know. But you can't really do that in the U.S., which is why a lot of artists, uh, musicians and, you know, visual artists, whatnot, end up going into teaching. And I think in the visual arts, there's been a greater success rate with excellent artists becoming teachers, um, I, you know, maybe to varying degrees of success as a teacher in a profession itself, but continuing to do amazing work and teach. Whereas a lot of musicians who go into teaching, it ends up crippling their work and their their abilities as a musician because they're kind of stranded in a in a school system, uh, even if it's conservatory level, where they have a lot of uh, responsibilities that keep them from their own performance schedules that take up huge amounts of energy and time, which they then can't devote to their performing. Um, so I have I've seen less success from my point of view with with, uh, let's say, jazz musicians going into teaching and having it not affect their work in a negative way. And most of them end up wanting to get out. I mean, like in terms of people I've talked to, they, they the situation as a professor, you know, even though it's stable, even though maybe you have health care and a decent salary and whatnot, uh, the, the deficit in terms of your creative output is so huge that almost always they're like relieved when they get out or they retire or they just, you know, abandon ship. So that option for me certainly isn't really an option. Uh, I don't want to go that route. So that, so I basically have to tour in Europe to survive. Uh, when you're on the road, do you does that uh, help experimentation, or do you feel like maybe you have to uh, change gears a little bit, or do you have just as much freedom when you're out there as you do, say, playing around Chicago? Oh, I, I feel that the the touring situation helps the music immeasurably. I mean, for me, part of the a huge part of why I'm fascinated by improvised music is the risk of like trying to find something different to say every night, and of course, you know. It's impossible to invent something new every single day, 
but the risk is there, you know what I mean? And I'm excited by that, and I'm excited by the chance that you can find something new to say, something different to say. And then if you fail, which is going to happen if you're doing things you don't know how to do, if you're experimenting like you should be, I think, in this kind of music, um, you're going to fail. That's like you have to push yourself to the breaking point in terms of like what you can accomplish, how you can execute an idea. And the beauty of touring means that you can get up and do it again the next day. You know, if, if I have a concert, let's say, in Chicago and, and I fail and I don't have a concert on again for 10 days, i got to live with that failure for 10 days. If I fail on the road, I can, I can get back at it the next day and try again and try some other things and, and kind of realign my thinking or learn from the mistake immediately. You know, that learning curve is accelerated when you're on the road because you're doing it every night. And I know that there's the aspect of, you know, it's quite exhausting. I mean, you know, it's it's a late night, early morning. I and mean, when I got into it, I mean, I remember reading stuff as a kid and reading about Ben Webster and Coleman Hawkins. And they go to bed at, you know, five in the morning and then sleep until three in the afternoon and then start over. I said, hey, that's perfect for me. <laughs> you know, that's and basically what we do is we go to bed at four in the morning and have to get up at six in the morning to catch a train or, you know, it's like a sleep deprivation mode of living now, which is pretty horrible. I mean, that part, it completely is miserable. But what ends up happening is you're kind of like people who tour really well, they have like a tour mentality, which is that they reserve their energy. They sleep anywhere, you know, sitting up, traveling, whatever. You know, they can sleep anywhere. And then you get this kind of adrenaline adrenaline rush before you go on stage that kicks in. And like, that's your that's your routine. That's that's your rhythm. And you get used to it. And it, yeah, I mean, shows there are shows that would I've had that definitely suffered because of the travel that we were faced with the day of the gig. But I've also had gigs where, I mean, we've like literally have. I got trapped in Sheffield, London. We missed a plane and we had to get to Warsaw and we traveled an entire day and got to the gig when the gig was supposed to start. We still had to set up our equipment and play the show while the audience was staring at us, pissed off because we were late. And we had a brilliant concert. And, I, and part of that wasn't because of the travel that didn't inspire us, but we were so, we were so, uh, uh, wound up by like, can we make this gig? Can we get there? Can we get there? And we actually got there and played a, an extraordinary show because of, of the energy that we had um, to, to overcome the obstacle. But sometimes you can't overcome obstacles like that and you completely fail. I mean, I did a show with the X and Brass Unbound and we, we got trapped um, in somewhere in France and we had to get to Milan and we did the same thing. We like spent a huge amount of money buying flights to Milan out of Paris, which ate the entire budget from the festival gig. We got to Milan and had a horrible show. And just completely nothing worked. The equipment was bad. There was no, you know, just everything could go wrong went wrong. And we really, it was the same kind of thing. Like, we're going to do it. We're not going to fail. You know, we're going to get to this gig. We're going to play it. And we got there and everything fell apart, you know. So it's like you never know what's going to end up happening. But the the possibility is what's so exciting, you know, and that's what's what I love about touring is that the possibility of finding something new, the the the, the risks and the challenges, uh, the potential is always there, and I prefer that, and I think it it helps my music, uh, like I said, immeasurably to be able to you know have those challenges on a on a nearly daily basis. When you say uh, earlier, you were saying like uh, sometimes you fail, and to me it's like I've seen you and I've 
definitely watched a lot of videos of you live, and I'm I'm like, how? I mean, I this is total ignorance on my part, but I'm like, how does this guy fail, or what is failing to you? Can the audience tell, or is it personal goals that you set for yourself on stage that maybe you don't achieve? Um, I think it's the latter. You know what you just said. Like I have things that I'm hearing that I'm trying to get to. You know. Um, in the moment, so to speak. And like, it falls apart from my, the differential between what I'm trying to accomplish and what I actually reach is something that I feel. And maybe the other, other musicians can recognize, oh, this didn't work out or whatever. But I've done shows with musicians where I thought they played amazingly well and they come off stage and they're just frustrated as hell. And I know why, because they were hearing something they were trying to get to and they missed. Um, I've definitely had a very strong, frustrating uh, experience in concerts. And then I hear a tape later and I'm like, oh, you know, that actually sounds pretty, you know, that sounds good. Like, because I'm now having an objective viewpoint on it because I'm not like in the moment of like this feeling of of not achieving my goals, so to speak. Um, But that feeling is very, very real, you know? And I think that, as miserable it is, as it is to have that sense of failure, I think if you're not willing to, to push far enough to, to, to not achieve things, you're not going to get anywhere. You're just going to end up repeating things that work. And the truth of the matter is the scenario when you're improvising is always different. Even if you're working off of compositions, the, 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 the interaction, the environment, there's like so many factors that, that affect the playing that w- one of the biggest failures is, and this happens just because, you know, I might be exhausted and I'm, I'm just cannot find anything to say. You end up trying to do something that you did the night before that worked really well. And invariably that will not work because the context has changed. And so you're going back in the past to find something that's going to work in the present. And it just doesn't, it doesn't happen. You know, it's like repeating yourself. Like, you know, it's, Oh, here's that story again. That guy told every single time I get together with him, he says the same story. It's so boring. It's the same thing with the music, you know? And like, if you start working with people and you keep repeating yourself, they're going to want to stop working with you. Cause like, okay, I've heard it 3000 times now. Like come up with something new, which is part of the job of improvisation is to try to find something different to say as often as possible with the materials you're working with, with the players you're working with, the compositions, if they are some. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the idea of failure is uh, personal, I guess, you know, and I think, you know, if you talk to anybody working in, in, in creative fields, you know, writers and painters and filmmakers, they're all, they all talk about the differential between what they're trying to accomplish and what they succeed with. And I, I think like that's a fascinating thing to me about filmmakers, like really great filmmakers, directors. I know that they never, ever make the film they wanted to make. Even like these films that we talk about as masterpieces, you know, you know, I mean, just as a person that works creatively, you see like, holy shit, look how amazing this, this result is. But because it's so collaborative, you know, you you might have a cameraman, you're working with actors, you may have written the script, you're working up, you know, there's so many things you don't control that by the time that film is released, it's got to be a long way from what you were hoping for, you know? And I've got a photograph of Eric Dolphy. Actually, it's in my room. I'm looking at it right now. One of my favorite records of any kind of music at all is Eric Dolphy's Out to Lunch. I don't know if you know that, but this Blue Note record. It's 
it's an amazing i mean like if there's like you know there's a handful that's quote unquote perfect jazz records for me that's one of them it's like it's futuristic it's everything it's amazing and it's a photograph that uh, francis wolf took during the recording sessions and like for me if i if in my lifetime i could make a document that powerful that strong that enduring i'd be really 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 happy and the photograph is of dolphy and he's kind of leaning you know, on his hand, and he looks miserable. He looks like this isn't working. I'm not getting this stuff across. I don't know if he's listening to a playback of a take or it's during rehearsals, but the look on his face is a person that's really like unsatisfied. It's a it's a photograph of an unsatisfied creative person in the middle of a process and wondering what the hell they're going to do to make this thing work. So that's the differential that Dolphy was feeling on one of the most successful jazz records ever made, <laughs> you know, and, and I, and I keep that photograph to look at it just to kind of keep myself in check. Because if you go down that path of, of feeling like you're always not achieving the mark, you just, you just caught up, you know, like looping that forever and you're never satisfied. And I think you've got to have some sense, uh, some sense of personal satisfaction in your work and joy in it. Otherwise you're going to go crazy. You know, and even if you're failing, you got to turn the failures into like, okay, I accept this because this is part of the process. This is part of the job of trying to work in a creative field that isn't about measurable success. I mean, commercial work um, in the arts, you know, like, okay, it's the biggest selling record or, you know, the most people went to the, the movie that week or whatever, and you can check it off all in terms of sales. Well, uncommercial work doesn't have that verification. You know, we don't, there isn't the symbol, the, 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 the economic symbol, you know, we live in now the 21st century. It's essentially a capitalist system all over the frigging globe. Everyone verifies their self-worth based on economics now, which is really, really unfortunate because that's not the only way to judge your worth, you know, and in uncommercial work, that, that, that system doesn't, doesn't function well. You know, the, some of the greatest artists died penniless. And that's not just a romanticization of that. They didn't want to die penniless, <laughs> you know, but now we look at their work and we say, oh, it's so amazing, you know, and, and that's part of the gamble you're going into. It, it, and, and, and ironically, to bring it back to the question earlier you asked about U.S. Uh, art situation from funding versus Europe and whatnot, you know, the United States, and this isn't like a nationalistic attitude, I'm definitely not nationalistic in the least, but the fact is that the United States in the 20th century, and now going into the 21st century, has produced some of the greatest art, you know, in, 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 in this part of our history. Amazing art has come out of the United States, as, you know, all kinds, from visual art to writing to music. You know, the amount of invention that's come out of this country is, is really extraordinary without almost any, I mean, it's like tokenistic, the amount of money the arts get in this country. And they keep cutting it back. I mean, I don't even know how they can keep cutting it back. I'm not sure what's left to cut. I mean, I guess it's the thing, like, if you cut something in half, you can keep cutting it in half, in, you know, infinitely. We're somewhere really close to the infinite cut in half of the arts. There's, like, almost no money going to the arts at this point when you look at per capita income and all this stuff. Um, but the people doing the art, like you said, you know, friends of yours and stuff in L.A., you know, they're doing work and it's insulting. They're not getting paid. But they can't, it's like you can't help yourself. 
it's in you, you know, and this isn't like a romanticization. Like I work with people like this all the time who are ingenious at figuring out ways to use all with almost no resources, make amazing music, make amazing art, write incredible statements, you know, because they have to. And, and because the United States, you know, like in France, you can work as an artist and get subsidy money and the whole system there, I don't know if it's still exactly the same, but basically if you work as an artist for one year, a musician, let's say, and you make X amount of money off of X amount of concerts, then the next year you don't play at all. You don't have one gig. The government will pay you like 80% of what you made the year before to subsidize you. Okay. That doesn't exist. Not, not even close <laughs> to the United States. But, but what ends up happening is you get a lot of people going into the arts as a means to, to, to make a living, as a career choice. Like, I'll be a plumber, or I'll be an artist, or I'll be whatever. I don't give a shit about it, but it's a way to make a living. And, you know, if I don't have to work a whole year and still make 80% of what I made the year before, that sounds pretty slick. This is not an option in the United States. So the people who end up doing the arts are either completely crazy or completely savvy about how to use resources. And the grant system here, essentially, the people who get grants are really good at writing grants, not necessarily really good artists. So they fulfill all the application requirements and can articulate things in a very unique language that is suited to grants only. Uh, and they get that money. But the artists that really could use the money and do something excellent with it are busy making artwork and don't know the grant languages and have to hire people to write the damn things for them if they're going to get a grant. And I know that because I've had people try to help me, and it's insane. It's completely insane. So the people who get that money end up getting more and more grants, and their work is, you know, usually the people who get the grants, you don't actually hear about them because the work goes into a cupboard somewhere or gets performed once. Whereas people who don't go that system because they're busy, they, they have enough savvy to figure out how to do it. And then in the end, they don't get the grants because, well, you don't need them because you're already making the artwork without it. <laughs> so in the United States, you're like in a total catch-22 if you're serious about it. And then, you know, then, of course, there are people who are totally nuts, and they keep doing it too. And, and I think the artists here are probably some kind of com combination of highly intelligent, highly motivated, highly disciplined people who are crazy enough to say, I'm going to do it anyway, even though, like, you know, the room isn't filled with people or uh, I'm selling a, a zillion records or my paintings are going for tens of thousands of dollars or whatever. I'm doing it because I, I have to and because I get, quote unquote, paid through the work itself in ways that are more meaningful than only getting a paycheck. And, and the best work is not about the paycheck. I mean, my concerts that I've done that I remember best, I have no idea what I got paid. I can't remember what I got paid on shows. I can remember the shows. You know what I'm saying? And I'm sure you've had the same kind of experience. It's like the satisfaction of, of working with amazing people. And like with improvised music, doing something spontaneous that everybody in the room, the musicians and the listeners are experiencing for the first time ever, and it will never be the same. When it's really happening and everyone's on the edge of their seat, on the edge of the stage, like, where is it going? Where is it going? But trusting that it's going to go someplace amazing. That experience, man, I can carry that. I have a show like that, and it carries me for months. But I, don't, I, I won't remember what I got paid. And sometimes it's like I got paid 20 bucks. Sometimes I got paid $2,000. But the show is what sticks. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
you know, and, and, and I think, you know, it's a shame that, 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 you know, things get, uh, what do you call it, uh, understood in terms of, of finances only. And it's so true in the United States that, that that's like your self-worth is defined by income. It seems and, worse than ever. Yeah, it, I, I agree. I agree. You know, and, uh, and, I, and it, it cuts off so many people from 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 uh what do you call it? A, a means of expression that that make life you know uh endurable you know there's so much stuff going on now all over the world that you know i always make this argument for the arts the arts are like something that make life worth living <laughs> you know <laughs> I mean, and and it sounds simplistic. Like I, I take it very, very seriously. I mean, I feel like, you know, I, it's a privilege for me to get to choose to do what I'm doing. You know, I, I mean, I was very fortunate. I came up in a middle class, you know, uh, white American middle class family. I got access to like a decent education. I was taken to hundreds of concerts as a kid. I got to see all kinds of things, and that motivated me to go and do what I'm doing now. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to do it. You know. Um, there are a lot of people with, I'm sure, as much passion and interest and, and creativity as I have who don't have, have not had the access that I've had and don't have the resources that I, I have now to, to pursue something they could really contribute, you know. And the fact is that artists of all kinds, you know, in all fields contribute to society, they don't take away from society. Like this mythology in this country that gets spilled all the time in the news. Oh, artists, you know, living off the, off, off the taxes, artists doing this art. Man, artists, like, they, they, they're one of the few people that don't fuck shit up. <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're putting stuff back into society that's, that's helping it, you know? Maybe helping it understand itself better or reinterpreting it, inspiring people to do something decent with their lives. I mean, I, I, and, and it's an economic motivator. That's the other irony. You know, gentrification comes out of artists moving into neighborhoods. That's what starts it. And there's lots of negative things about gentrification, but the economic turnaround is motivated by artists moving into those areas. You know, like Wicker Park in Chicago, that changed because artists moved into Wicker Park. Wicker Park was like a really screwed up, you know, pretty dangerous area I when I moved here, yeah. you know. I was there. And it changed. Exactly. I mean, you know. And why did it change? Because it was cheap. And that particular area, for some reason, musicians and artists moved into and then it became hip and then people wanted to move there when people were poor and it was dangerous and there were gangs no one wanted to move there when the artists came in oh then it becomes cool and then there's a transition because there's other neighborhoods that are super shitty in, in chicago that have never turned around that have never gentrified and the difference is that there was no critical mass of artists moving there you know and when you look at tourism why did why do people visit cities around the world to go to the financial district? Well, maybe if maybe maybe the business people do, but no one's coming to Chicago to check out, you know, the the yeah the financial district. They're going to the museums, they're going to the theaters, they're going to see the music, you know. And who's doing that work? The artists are doing that work, you know. And tourism is a multi 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 billion dollar industry, you know. And it's very strange that there, this, th these are just facts. I mean, I'm not like, you know, these are just very basic facts, 
economic facts. And it's very strange to me the way that that gets spun as, the, as if like the artists of, of this country are sucking off the tit of the taxation and they're not they're not they're just lazy bums who are like trying to have an easy living. It's absolutely the opposite. And in addition to that, there are like economic motivators between real estate, between tourism, you know, and, and why, why is it that artists are like somehow the problem child, you know, maybe because politically they ask a lot of questions, maybe because they, they work against the status quo and, and offer different options you know, and once that happens and you start raising the questions and people start pursuing these things, you start raising questions about, like, well, you know, governmental questions, you know, uh, societal, cultural questions. And, of course, you know, powers, you know, and I'm not trying to be conspiracy about it, but it's just a fact. The status quo, they like the way it is, you know, and when people start asking questions, you know, they're disturbed by that. And. The people asking the most questions tend to be the artists. We will get back to the conversation with Ken Vandermark in one second. But real quickly, I want to ask a favor of you. If you can go to the Feral Audio website and go to the Conversations with Matt Dwyer page and click on the Amazon link, if you use that link to to go to Amazon and purchase uh, anything like your cleaning fluids, your movies – Diapers for your baby. Some of you can even get groceries from Amazon. And we at Feral Audio get a kickback of that money. That money comes back to us and it helps buy recorders, microphones, because we do these shows for free. So that would be very helpful to us. You can also donate money if you like, but the Amazon link would be great. Also, go to themattdwyer.com for all things Matt Dwyer and podcast-oriented. Back to the show. Yeah, I think it's interesting that there's not a lot of main... I mean, you go back in history in 60s, 70s, there was a little bit... Even the 80s, there was more political-oriented uh, art and music, and I feel like there's nothing like that in the mainstream these days. Oh, it's really... I it's I agree with you, because, I, I mean, I was thinking about this... Um, oh, I think about it a lot, actually, but, like, I remember in the 80s when Reagan was in office and all the, the underground rock stuff that was so outraged... I mean, like, you know, all the SST stuff that came out, like really, and, and not like didactic, crappy music, but really exhilarating, amazing music that was in response to what was happening politically. Incredible stuff. And then when Bush was in power, like, the, the you know, the most outspoken things that you, you would find were like the Dixie uh, Chicks and Green Day. You know, which is like, it completely baffles me. Like, I don't, I mean, it's, you know, they, they, it took some spine for them to do that. And I mean, I'm not into that music, but I mean, at least they, they were like saying, Hey, what the hell is going on? You know? And, and even you, now, and you get shut down for doing it these days. Now you're, you know, if you, you're an asshole, if you speak up and you're, you're made they, they publicly, they make these people look like, you know, they're wrong. Right, 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 and and the machine that that monitors and maintains uh, uh, the public viewpoint on things, they've got this figured out so incredibly well. I mean, yeah, the artists, you know, they 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 tend to question things and whatnot, but I mean, the media, the journalists in this country, man, it's like they want to sit at the table, so they're willing to take whatever the government tells them to do, to, so they can sit on the table, which means not ask questions about what's going on around the table. 
I mean, it, I saw this unbelievably great documentary. It was made in 74 called Hearts and Minds, and I think it just got reissued or something because it's been floating around. And it's, and it's basically a documentary about the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. And it's an amazing film. It's absolutely amazing. And part of what's amazing about it is the journalistic access to materials. Like they're on the field in combat filming. They're talking to all kinds of people, you know, you know, and, and that film could never be made now. They could never make that film in Afghanistan. They, they would not have the access, you know, and it's, it's on the media. You know, we have we, we do have, in theory anyway, freedom of speech in this country. And the journalists should be like, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's their job. I mean, didactic art, politically motivated art tends to be pretty bad. I mean, it's, it's too simplistic. You know, art is really good for like uh, a lot of other things. But the the political situation, the ideas around that, that's. Journalism is supposed to be dealing with that. The journalists are supposed to be like breaking that stuff down and asking the questions, you know, and, and, and you'd see Rumsfeld at these press conferences, you know, and very occasionally someone would go at him and then he would just de deflect the question. But I mean, it's like people would just be, I mean, I, I can't even, <laughs> I can't even put it into words how frustrating it is. And, uh, and, and, you know, if that's the case, everywhere you look in the mass media and you, you, you know, it just confirms don't don't ask questions, you know, and when you do, you, you you're, you're, you're maybe your, your career is at stake and they know that and, that. and that's how it keeps people in line. Oh, you can say anything you want. You know, you can do anything you want. It's a free country. But, you know, but we may do this to you or we may do that to you. But feel free to say what you want. You just won't work again. There's a, a documentary about Lee Atwater. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, I no. But it's interesting because uh, there's a moment where Bush, uh, I forget, it's who the, maybe it was Dan Rather, is interviewing George Bush, uh, and he blatantly just, he just lies, and and Rather says, like, I couldn't question him, because if I called him out on the lie, he wouldn't come back on the show again, and it would screw, like, he admits. It's like, yeah. It's so That's upsetting. what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. And it's Dan Rather. I mean, he's been doing, you know, his whole for decades, decades, and he's doing the same thing, you know, and, and you got to think like journalists who went after people, they've got to be, you know, just w really disgusted because that's part of the job. Like I see my job as, as doing a different set of things and I take it really seriously. And if I go on stage and I just fuck around and I'm not trying to push myself and not trying to ask artistic questions about music and whatever, then I'm not doing my job. And I put out records and I do concerts and people criticize what I do positively and negatively. I put myself out there and that's part of my job. You know, I should be, I should be holding myself to a very, 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 very high standard and meeting that every single time I go out or I'm failing. Well, a journalist has a different set of, you know, a different set of parameters in their job. And they should meet those things too. And part of it is if someone is lying, they should be called on it, especially if they're people running the country. And if no one calls them on it and the journalists don't, because they're the ones that are like the front line of that, they're the intermediary between the public and, and the government. 
or the corporations or whatever. And if they're not willing to challenge those institutions, that means that the public is getting misinformation by dearth of information. And they're not doing their job. And they shouldn't sleep at night because of that. Because there's a lot at stake. You know, there's a lot at stake. And, and we're like in one of the worst times. I mean, I talk to people, my parents' age, uh, you know, in their 70s now, I guess. And they look at stuff coming, you know, that they were born either during World War II or right after it. And almost all of them say, I'm so happy my parents are gone and they're not watching what's happening right now. You know, that's horrible. You know? When you go to Europe, do you get a, a take on what their take is, what's going on over here? Well, you know, when I started touring a lot um, in Europe, and that would have been like uh, end of the 90s, I guess, I started going there a lot. So let's say about 15 plus years. Um, initially, I was always asked, like, what's wrong with the U.S.? And like, why are you guys doing this? Why are you doing that? You know, why... And I'd be like, you know, you're right. It's it's really screwed up. I mean, uh, you know, and then all the involvement that happened, you know, with Bush going back into Iraq and all these things. And it just it was horrific. And, you know, but the thing that's weird now is look what's happening in Western Europe. Everything is swinging to the right. You, you look at places that used to be from a musician standpoint are, you know, uh, um, artist standpoint, places like Sweden and the Netherlands, which were like utopian. I mean, they had like amazing situations for artists. They've cut all that stuff. Like the concert about, which is like, 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 I guess would be like the, you know, whatever, what's the most famous, <laughs> most famous institution, let's say the Lincoln Center or whatever. They, they, their budget was cut by 50%, which is a huge amount of money, like just gutted, you know? Uh, and they did that. That was like a famous institution. So like a, a lot of other institutions just eradicated in the Netherlands, like all these places that had like really good health care, really good education systems, support for the arts, support for the culture, all these different kinds of things, all positive. Yeah, they came out of taxes. A lot of tax money went towards that stuff, but they weren't building bombs with it. You know what I mean? And and what's happened is they've all swung to the right. So you have these like insane people. You know, like in the Netherlands, this guy who's like totally against, you know, Islam and, and he's he's like been sort of pushed out of the government. But he has so much vocal power that they kowtow to him on the right. And he, he has huge impact on decision makings for the right wing in, in the Netherlands, which now is unless something happened recently, is still running the country. The same thing in Sweden, you know, you know, the stuff going on, you know, in the southern part of Western Europe. I mean, everything has gone to the right. And they're and they're adopting the U.S. model. They're cutting money towards things like the arts, towards you know, education, towards all these things that that contribute to to knowledge, to building long-term development of a culture. They're cutting that, and they're putting you know they're, they're cutting back on taxes, so people suddenly feel happy about that, like it's a short-term gain. Um, and and everything is going right wing. And so they're adopting the U.S. model. So when I go there now, I'm like, look, I've been listening for like a decade about how awful the United States is. Why is it that you're letting your country, your country is now making decisions that follow the, the footwork of the U.S. And you have the example in front of you of why it fails, why it's a negative path to take. And they all like, go, yep, you're right. <laughs> you know, so that's what's happening over there now. 
it's it's really dark, man. It's really really dark and really scary. And you know, with I mean, with the stuff that's going on in the Ukraine, with the stuff that's going on still in the middle Middle East, what's going on, you know, with Palestine and, and Israel, and on and on and on. I mean, it's really scary, and 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 it's kind of unbelievable that we're at this point right now when historically when things go to the right to this extreme bad things happen you know and you don't have people asking questions about that like the journalists who could be you know interfacing and, and addressing this stuff and informing the public in mass media ways not just like you know journalism under the radar you know like really like putting it out in front on the front page like holy shit guys like this is what's going on you know, it's not going to help matters, you know, and, and it's and their that's their responsibility. I mean, that's their job. Yeah, it's it's terrifying to me how many people uh, <clears throat> these days apologize publicly for something they said. <clears throat> and, you know, granted, sometimes it's wrong. <laughs> and mm-hmm. But it's like, man, we got to stop fucking apologizing for everything and and show some uh, some courage and fucking do say something and stand behind it instead of being like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, that was wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Have an opinion. Have a dialogue. I mean, think about about something as volatile as racism in the United States. If we can't have a discussion about that, if people can't talk about it directly and make mistakes, you know, it's 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 very volatile. I mean, I, I come out of music that's associated with jazz, and you know, African Americans innovated that music. Uh, they're geniuses involved in it, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a white guy playing music connected to that, you know, and like, the, and I work with, you know, African-American musicians and all kinds of different people, you know, and you have to be able to have discussions about race and not be only concerned about being politically correct, because it's just kind of like a, a covert racism. If you can't talk about things, if you can't sit down and really have discussions and ask questions without being then needing to apologize for using the wrong term terminology, you know, we have to learn why the terminology is wrong. You know what I mean? We have to learn why we should be equivalent and equal and why, you know, it's, it's idiotic to say to someone, let's say to keep it to my music, because you're white, you can't play a music associated with uh, African-American culture and community. It's as idiotic as saying, well, because you're from that community, you can't play Beethoven, yeah. which is like, you know, a, a Germanic culture. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's, it's not, it, it's, it's much richer than it gets played. And, and like, you know, same thing with sexism, same I mean, all these different kinds of things. If we can't talk about them and make mistakes and learn from them, we get nowhere. And I think that's why, like, you know, the racism situation in the U.S. has been in a holding pattern for so long. You know, there were some breakthroughs connected to the civil rights movement, and some things got better, some things got worse. But, you know, this is a really hard time to be an African-American, and it's not going to get better for that community or the white community or the Latin American community, whatever, it, you know, unless people can address what's really going on, you know, and, and that's about dialogue. And that's like you say, you can't, you have to be able to make mistakes in order to learn, you know, and, and when something's volatile, like racism, you, you know, that, that makes it really difficult and challenging to not be afraid to make mistakes because you don't want to hurt people. 
You don't want to do the wrong thing. You want to do the right thing, you know, and to learn what the right thing is, what's really needed, it has to come from the community, not from outside the community. That's like a colonialism approach, you know. I mean, I, I came from a middle-class white family. For me to understand anything about what it means to be African-American, I need to learn that from that community. You know, uh, that's the only way. And that means dialogue. That means conversations. That means, like, learning that I'm really wrong about a lot of things and maybe right about some other things. But I need to find that out by, like, being there and working with people. And that's one of the beauties of the music I play. It's about collaboration on a really, really, really high level. And... It's amazing the kinds of people who want to work together and surprise each other, you know? And, uh, I mean, like recently I just did a project with Jason Moran at the, the Symphony Center in Chicago, you know, and a vast majority of what was happening in this, I guess you could call it multimedia, mixed media piece because it had theater in it and some other things as well, you know, you know, his group bandwagon, they're all African-Americans, uh, the theater part and theater gates, the stage, he's an African-American, the high school uh, students, the musicians that were also involved were African-American. And I and um, uh, the woman uh, playing, Katie Ernst playing bass, were white. And it was really brave of him to have us on that stage. And it shouldn't have, I mean, like it was, and I, he's a bold guy, and I, I really respect him. And he did what he wanted to do from a musical standpoint. He wanted to include me because he wanted my, my voice in that music, despite the fact that I'm white. And that was bold of him. And on some level, on a very fundamental level, it shouldn't have been bold. It should have been just, yeah, self-explanatory. And from his standpoint, it totally was. Everybody working with me is like, great, you're here, man, fantastic. We all work together as equals. And that's the, one of the great beauties of, of the music I'm involved in. Because on that stage, it was about us working together on a common goal and communicating about it. And that's really powerful. And that's what the arts can do. That was self-evident to everybody in that auditorium. You know, hearing that music that night and like that, everybody there shares that now. That's part of our mutual experience. And that's one of the powers of art. And I think that like the fact that that gets so overlooked in this country is kind of a tragedy because that's how things change is by having experiences like that. It's, you know, and, and maybe I'm pointing out the obvious and or reiterating, but I feel like cutting arts in in public schools and, you know, that is going to break down more barriers and unite people. Than, Absolutely. And it's like when I'm listening to you say that, I'm just like, Christ, it's fu it's fucking upsetting. <laughs> it's like they're just by cutting art programs and they're just dividing us even further. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And like you think like, uh, you know, I, I look at, at people like, like my, my brother. OK, when he went to high school, there were arts. There was like, you know, uh, there were art classes and music classes like general public school classes like that. If he hadn't had art classes, he never would have graduated from high school. Like they saved him. Like he, he was miserable and everything else, but he knew he would, you know, he'd have this art class every day. And that kind of kept him going forward through the program. You know, for some kids, it's, you know, it's sports for some kids. It's, you know, something else, but to cut all of these programs, cause they're cutting sports and stuff too. They're cutting all these things. They're, not everybody is this. We're different. 
you know, and, and, and having access is the first step towards like developing unique people who can think, who can think for themselves, who can do, contribute things to society and aren't just like, I mean, the more they reduce the education system, especially in the public schools, because the private schools have different resources, but in these public schools, which most people go to school um, in, the, in the country at public schools, the more they reduce things, the dumber the students are going to be. I mean, their intelligence is, you know, what it is, but their ability to think, to actually think, is reduced and reduced and reduced. And if this country wants to be competitive in terms of, like, the global situation, and it is a global situation, whether we like it or not, we're doing everything wrong. I mean, really everything wrong. And the arts, you know, are, like you say, another thing that can contribute in the education process to bring people together, to learn from each other, whether through intuition or discipline or, you know, creative action, whatever, that show like the, the parallels between people as well as the unique differences would make, which make us so cool as individuals. You know, the arts don't eradicate the individualism. They add to it and they sh and, and that becomes something to share, you know, and it's a, it's it's an amazing thing. And, and for that to get reduced and reduced and reduced, I mean, it's so different now for kids. I mean, since when, when we went to school, they have so much less offered to them. And that means that they're going to have so much left to offer back. It's really terrifying, and it's it's like yeah. It's also it makes me when you were saying earlier like it's of course most artists tend to be in this vein of thinking, and it's like of course you could see the right wing going not to sound conspiratorial, but being like yeah, we don't want to fund these guys because this is what they're saying. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But it's it opens dialogue at least. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that's where it's got to start. It's it's about communicating. And, you know, arts can, can com the arts can communicate different things through music and and theater and play, whatever, all these things. And journalism can communicate in a different kind of way. And all these other other means of communication are important, but it's about communication. And if there isn't a dialogue, you know, there's not really a dialogue going on in the government right now between the Democrats and Republicans. That's not a dialogue. You know, it's a lot of blathering. If there isn't a dialogue, then nothing gets done. And, and it's all about communication. And really, really strong communication can accomplish amazing things. But that, that, that's got to be open. It's, it's, we have to be in a situation where the idea of communication is an open thing, not a closed thing. And right now, it's very, very closed. And we're feeling the repercussions of it. I, and I, I think going back to the education thing, I just feel like there, people are not just basic communication skills. From what I see, a lot of I work in a bar sometimes, and I, I'm just astounded by some of the things I see behavioral, behaviorally going on with people and their lack of communication. And it's, it's like it's alarming how social graces have slipped out of our culture, like just simple please and thank you and and being considerate. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like what, it, what they call the culture of complaint. You know, it's this, this sense of entitlement, that, you know, and, and the inst uh, this kind of instantaneous quality of getting everything immediately, you know, like the access through through things to the Internet, like to get this, to get that, to, you know, it's and, and you see it. I mean, yeah, if you're working, I mean, I spent a lot of time in, in bars and clubs, you know, 
with the music I do. And, you know, you see people sitting together and they're all on their phone. You know, they don't talk to each other anymore. You know, like that somehow somewhere in the universe, something more important that is happening than what's happening to the person I'm sitting in front of that I'm in this place with, you know, and it's, it's a really weird time for stuff. I think like trying to be optimistic about it. I would imagine that this, this point where everyone with their smartphones and everything that, you know, access to everything at all times, wherever you are. I mean, before, if you went to a bar, you know, you wouldn't be able to have your computer with you. You know what I mean? Now you can on, on your phone, you're basically carrying your computer around all the time. And, you know, with hopefully people are going to kind of like get through this and be like, you know, actually, I, I kind of want to have a conversation with the person I came to the bar with, you know, or, or out to dinner with or whatever, you know, it's just it's I agree. It's really, really, really strange. I mean, I went to New York, I don't know, uh, like about half a year ago, whatever. And, and I, I just left the city kind of feeling depressed because. It was overrun with so many, you know, trustees, you know, kids on trust funds, you know, with tons of money and their gold cards and, you know, and they'd, they'd hang out and they'd, they'd be at the bars and just sitting there like looking at their phone the whole time. You know, there was no, it was like, it was like a giant museum, you know, it's, uh, and I have tons. Hmm? Oh, I was just going to say, did you uh, see the piece Moby wrote about New York City and why he moved out of there? No, no, I didn't see it, no. Oh, it's just pretty much it was what you were saying of just like, he was like, none of my friends were artists anymore. They were all buyers. And he's like, yeah. as an artist yeah. in New York City, it was there was no inspiration anymore. So he got the fuck out of there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have I have some really great friends living there and doing really cool things. But I definitely have had more and more of a feeling when I go there. It's like, man, you know, it's so expensive, uh, you know, especially within Manhattan and now even with Brooklyn, it's like to, to live there is so much money that it's almost impossible to have enough funds to like actually do anything creative and like to put on like a theater. I have a friend who works in the theater there and, and she can't even do like most of the, you know, quote unquote underground theater stuff off Broadway stuff is students who have like very wealthy parents who will pay to have the theater rented to put on like a weekend show or whatever. Cause it costs like 30 grand or something to put on something on a Friday, uh, even if it's not a Friday, but like to use one of the theaters. So like the underground theater in Chicago, uh, and sorry, in New York is almost impossible to sustain because it's so much money, like 30 grand, you know, for like a 40 seat theater, you know, it's like, but some, but there are people who can pay that. So those things are happening, you know, and that means like, like new theater can't really happen there. You know, the, the galleries are so outrageously priced out of whack. I mean, it's it's uh, the last period that was probably really burning was like the end of the seventies and eighties, like when Basquiat was there, and there was like you know it was still cheap, and you could still find places to do stuff, and there was really cool art and music happening in New York. And now, I mean, people go there to perform and and do stuff, but more and more, like like you said, like Moby, they're probably moving out because it's like the inspiration is is in the museums, not on the street. Do you uh, fear that uh, uh, Chicago is kind of headed in that direction at all? Well, I mean, Chicago has the advantage of being, like, endlessly sprawling. You know, it's not an island. So there's always cheaper places to live. Um, and, you know, the, the economy of Chicago compared to New York in terms of, like, cost of living and whatnot is so different. Um, it's definitely way more expensive than when uh, when you when you moved out. I mean, it's it's way more 
but um, there's still lots of areas where you know you can afford to live uh, on, a, on a reasonable budget. And you know, in terms of music, like to keep it to the thing that I know the most about. I mean, compared to New York and Brooklyn, like there's tons of places to play in Chicago still. There's lots of you know there's not a, there's not a lot of money. Most of the gigs are still door gigs and whatnot. But um, I mean, there's for this kind of, the kind of music I'm involved in. There's like a club now called Constellation, which has music almost every day of the week. And then in addition to that, there's like a weekly series, I think, every single night of the week, at least five nights a week in Chicago, doing just the kind of music that I'm involved in. Like, you know, whatever, avant-garde jazz or improvised music or whatever we can call it. Non-commercial music that's uh, connected to improvisation. I mean, that's kind of amazing, you know. And that wouldn't be possible in a city like New York where, you know, you've got to make so much money every night to sustain a club, to sustain a a venue. You know, so a lot of these people are, you know, places are taking advantage of, uh, you know, programming adventurous non-commercial music because they want to. And they have the uh, financial leeway to do so because the rents aren't so outrageously expensive yet. But it's definitely, you know, I mean, for the Midwest, even more so than, than when you were living here, I think Chicago is is the main cultural center. You know, and you look at other cities that used to be really significant, like Detroit. And I'm not to say that the cities aren't significant. That's not exactly what I mean. But in terms of, like, profile, you know, Detroit's had really, really tough times economically and whatnot, and Cleveland, the same thing, St. Louis, the same thing. And there's stuff going on in those cities for sure, but people who are really driven and ambitious and whatnot in the arts and otherwise, and they live in the Midwest, they're going to come to Chicago. I mean, Chicago's really a draw, you know, across the country in terms of places to go. And there are actually people from Europe who have moved to Chicago for the music scene, you know. So as long as that's happening, there's going to be a vitality here. uh, And there's, uh, you know, outlets for stuff. For for the theater, it's still super, super active in all kinds of underground and above-ground theater. Um, So, you know, there's still a lot of potential here and a a lot of room to grow. Um, I think at some point you're going to see the big cities like New York, Chicago, L.A. and whatnot um, are going to just price themselves out of existence for someone who's in the arts who's not making a lot of money. And you'll see people moving more to second you know, tier cities like people in Chicago will probably go to Milwaukee because it's so much cheaper to live there. That's already happening. You know, people going there um, and things like that, you know, where like a city nearby, maybe they'll go there or they'll find another place where it's really affordable because you got to. You got you can't I mean, the problem like in New York is and musicians I know that have moved there. You've got to work all the time, usually at another job, not playing music to pay your rent, which means you have almost no energy left to work on the music that you're there for. And, you know, there have been like studies done. A friend of mine was telling me about that part of being an artist, you know, which people view as laziness is actually you need the free time to conceptualize stuff. If you're working all the time, part of what you're you're losing is the freedom to think and work out ideas to kind of like, let's say, you know, stare off into space. 
and 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 and, and ponder stuff that's going on. And if there's like, like you think of cafe society in Paris, you know, like at the t- turn of the 20th century and whatnot, you know, and during the early 20th century, I mean, people are sitting around there talking about what they're doing, you know, or the same thing in New York in the in the in the 40s and and you know 50s with like the abstract expressionists. They spent a lot of time talking as well as painting. And those conversations and that time they had to, to, to confront ideas that way accelerated the process of their artwork. If you don't have any time to go somewhere, if there's no center to have the conversations, like one, one bar, like the Cedar Bar in Manhattan for the abstract expressionists, that was a social place to deal with creativity, you know? And if you lose all those things, as well as the time to just sit and think, the, the the artwork is going to suffer and it's not going to go anywhere, which is part of what I think is happening, you know, with the New York scene. There's less and less time for for the the creative aspect, and because more and more time has to go into figure out how you're going to ever afford to pay your rent. It's it's interesting too because I'm listening to you say that, and it's like people don't realize how much work that actually takes to to have free time and to think. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's exhausting. Yeah. It's not an easy. It's it's not like oh I'm just drinking coffee and dicking off. <laughs> it's like you're working. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's really easy. I mean, you know, people misconstrue it as as laziness, but it's like you've got to. Like I spend a lot of time, you know, uh, reading, uh, watching films, and people look at that like oh it's leisure time. It's like I'm doing research. I mean, to do the music that I, I'm interested in, I'm, I have to leave the field of music to, to look at wh- the way people construct stuff in other art forms to inform me about how I should be restructuring my own work. That's research, you know? It's not just like you know, goofing off. And I think that uh, you know, people don't necessarily see that because if they have a more conventional lifestyle, when they're not working, they're, 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 it is leisure time. I mean, uh, people in the arts, it's like I am my job. It's not a job. It's not like, you know, I'm going to work and I'm punching. I am what I do. There's no separation. You know what I'm saying? And that's true for for anybody who's serious in the arts. It's what they do. So they don't turn it off. Like, I mean, people in in the past when I'd have relationships with, with people, you know, they'd say, oh, it's really cool. You're a musician. And then after a month, they'd be like, when do you stop being a musician? Because like if I wasn't playing, I was thinking about playing. I was listening to records. I was, you know, and I'm like, I'm, there isn't a point when I'm not being a musician. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's who I am. It's like the 24 hour a day. I mean, I have dreams about music. You know, even if I'm asleep, there's music. You know what I'm saying? And 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 so I think for people who have like more conventional lifestyles, like a nine to five thing and weekends, the weekend is leisure time. You know, I don't have weekends. You know, I'm working. So it's it's a very different conception. I think for people, maybe that's hard to appreciate. They just say, oh, you know, that's someone sitting, sitting there drinking coffee, reading a book. It's like, man, I'm, I'm figuring out what I got to do next. When you come up with uh, an idea for a song, because I'm always interested in that in a, in a, music, a jazz way of... I mean, does it? Do you start with a feeling? Do you start with a concept? Is it an emotion, or is it a mix of these things when you when you go to write something or work something? Um, it's kind of a mix. Like I'm working on some. Uh, I'm actually in the middle of doing a lot of composing right now for this new large band I'm doing based in Chicago called Audio One, and 
like yesterday, oh, I, yeah, I was actually reading um, this collection of writings by a, an artist named uh, Robert Irwin. And I got the idea, like it just sort of hit me that I want to do a piece that's that's got notation in it like but but none of the 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 notation is conventional in terms of like uh pitch notation or rhythmic notation but there's like specific indications of what event should happen the type of sound they might be and that like totally triggered me it's like okay i i, I can i can conceptualize the whole thing now so it'll be i can i can visualize this piece that'll be maybe 15 20 minutes that's organized on a whole different set of principles other than conventional notation. And that's exciting to me. And now I have a way to work with it. That, so like there isn't like uh, on one level a specific set of sounds, but I have a starting point and then that'll feed into like the narrative out of that. In some cases I sit down and I, I always compose um, melodic material um, with the, with the saxophone because that's, that's my, you know, the tenor is my main instrument. I don't, I can't play piano. I can't sing for sure. So I, I and all everything I play is always on on one of the horns. So for me, it's natural and makes sense to write off the horns. So sometimes I've I've got an idea of like kind of um, usually it's like uh, gestures, uh, like like uh, how do you say? A lot of times I think of like the the music part. It's like a, it's it's physical. It's like a it's like a like a block. And and you can take okay this this set of uh, let's say let's say really rapid leaping sounds okay that's the gesture and that block I can build with that and then later I'll go in and figure out what the actual the the, the notation and, and pitch structure of those gestures will be but it's like it's like a sketch and I work with these these sketch parts and then build a piece out of that and then go back and and then when I start writing the material that informs the sketches and then sometimes I throw part of the sketch out or, or redo stuff. And, and so those, there's steps that way too. Sometimes, yeah, like you say, it's a, it's a mood. It's, it's a, it's a feeling and you try to try to capture that. But I try, I mean, sometimes things happen that way, but in general, I, I think music has its own inherent logic and it communicates something that's broader then the simplicity of, oh, that sounds sad. Like, I think a lot, like, I really like Sly and the Family Stone. And and I think he was uh, he was really brilliant. Sylvester Stewart, while he's still alive, is really a, a brilliant man, genius. And if you think of a tune like everybody, Everybody's a Star, like, when you look at the lyrics, for the most part, it's like they say one thing. But when you put it with the music... And the way the music sounds, it's much more complex. There's a sense of melancholy to it from the very beginning. But when the words are just stated, it's like, well, this is like, wow, how, how, how positive and open. Everybody's a star. And then as it goes, there's something about the music. And, and that is why music is interesting to me. I mean, I'm, I'm using like a, a very like overt, popular uh, uh, example because it, it explains kind of what I'm trying to say in that the mystery of that, what he captures in the way it sounds is much more complex than saying, oh, this is sad because it's, it's many things at the same time. And instrumental music is so abstract, you know, it, 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 you know, without, with no text as an indicator whatsoever, you know, uh, it, it can mean 
many, 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 many things. And every culture has music. I mean, ancient cultures have stuff, you know, like there's some recordings from, I think it's Samoa, which is like so ancient as a culture, this one island, that they didn't have um, any even like basic songs, but they had games that were, were all sound-based. They're like, they like pre-musical music statements. But everything that they did, like if they did like work, you know, you know, uh, hammering grain or whatever, everything had, they realized everything had, it was like a sonic game. And the game was like the earliest, you know, almost like a, the earliest example of what music came out of in a sense. But, you know, after that kind of ancientness, you, you have every culture has music. And I can listen to something from South Korea, like some shamanistic stuff, with it, which I have no cultural reference to whatsoever. I don't understand the language. I don't understand the theater connected to it, the ritual connected to it, the religion connected to it. And it has power over me. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, like, so to me, music is a system of languages that run parallel to the system of verbal language, languages we have, a system of communication that is, is as powerful and communicates as much, but not with the same set of, uh, of uh, understanding or not with the same set of parameters. And that's why it exists everywhere. And that is fascinating to me. And so when I when I work on my own music, very rarely do I come from the standpoint of, oh, I have a mood that I want to create. I'm trying to do something more direct than that and create a thing that exists purely on its own terms. And then that establishes something, not going the other way. Do you follow what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So rather than start with a mood and try to create it, my ideal thing to do is to create something and that establishes maybe a mood, an impression, a sense of excitement or whatever it might be. But the thing itself is what's what's exciting. And so almost always I go from that standpoint, the idea, the gesture the I hear some sound that I really like and I and I and I steal it and I try to use it in a piece, you know, that, that whole idea. And then and then build from there. And that that uh, very, very interested in this idea, uh, Walter Benjamin, this uh, cultural critic, German cultural critic, and he has this idea about metaphor, which is really fascinating, which is that instead of the usual idea of metaphor, something is like something else, like simile, it is is the thing. And uh, there's really, uh, Hannah Arendt wrote an amazing introduction to this book of his his articles that I read, and she uses the example from, from the Iliad that the soldiers coming on the shore um, at the Battle of Troy were the ocean, not as if the ocean. It was equivalent. And the power in that image is so direct, and that's what I want to do with music. Like th this understanding of, like, let's say, uh, oh, here's a good one, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay, everyone think it was an amazing soundtrack by Morricone. The soundtrack is the film. It, you know, people think it's a soundtrack. It accompanies the film. You can hear the, the theme music for The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and it is equivalent to the film. It is the metaphor. It is the film. Why? It, it's a, it doesn't make any sense that you've got electric guitar <laughs> playing in a western you know i mean there's no the rationale this isn't like this isn't music of the time this is totally like a fiction 
but it's a fiction that is the thing. It, it, it is the film as much as the film is the music. You, do you follow what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the same thing with, with The Rite of Spring. You have the dance and you have Stravinsky's score. The dance and the score are a metaphor for each other. They are exactly the same thing. You can hear the music and you feel the dance. You know, it doesn't illustrate the dance. And I think that the, the misunderstanding so often with music in these contexts is that, oh, it illustrates another thing. It supports another thing. It is a parallel set of activity that communicates at its best, communicates an equivalent set of information, but a different set of information. And that is very, very interesting to me. And so when I think about music, I think about it as a concrete form uh, that works with abstraction on a super, super, super high level. And, and when you get into that, then you realize you're working with things that uh, function from a, um, an intellectual standpoint, an emotional standpoint, uh, all these other things like language does. But I can't verbalize it in terms of words. I have to verbalize it. Only, the only way to do it is to, to express it through music and through sound. And, uh, and, and that sense of uh, uh, that's exciting to me. That's really fascinating. And that's why that's what I do. <laughs> Holy shit, that was incredible. Uh, I would like to wrap it up there if, if that's uh, acceptable with you. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank uh, you yeah, so much, man. Yeah. That was really great. Oh, no, it's been a pleasure talking. You, you let me talk a lot, so it's, 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 <laughs> usually people tell me to stop after a while, but oh, thanks. The, the goddamn show ain't about me, man. <laughs> it's exactly what I want. I mean, you're obviously a beyond brilliant individual, so it's like, why would I well, not? Well, time, time will tell. Time will tell. <laughs> uh, but real quick, I would like uh, for you to please uh, plug uh, where people may find your music Oh, okay. Um, well, there's two places. There's a, an active website, KenVandermark.com, which is an archive of information about my work and other artists that I'm interested in. And then to get uh, access to my music, if you go to CatalyticSound.com, uh, you can basically get anything in my catalog, uh, CDs, LPs, and downloads. Um, and that's that, those are two good places to start. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If you enjoyed the show, go to the Conversations with Matt Dwyer page at Feral Audio. You could donate money. You could use the Amazon link. You can go to thematdwyer.com and find out all things about me. You could read my blogs. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, please donate if you can. Listen to, life, uh, listen to podcasts. Support Feral Audio. As uh, Chinch Madame Chinchilla said a few episodes ago, Art with a Pulse. Power to the people. Thank you.
branch of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.